Welcome to the panel discussion, Identity and Access Management, a top priority for states in 2019, sponsored by HID Global. Here's today's moderator, John Thomas Flynn. Welcome, thanks for joining us. My guests today are Todd Kimbrell, Deputy Executive Director, Department of Information Resources and Chief Information Officer of the State of Texas. Rajiv Rao, Chief Technology Officer, Office of Information Technology Services in the State of New York. Doug Robinson, Executive Director of NASIO, the National Association of State Chief Information Officers, and Jerry Cox, Director of Business Development at HID Global. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. I mentioned it earlier, but I want to say it again. I know this is uh, only Wednesday and you've had a heck of a week, our guests from uh, the states. Um, uh, NASIO just finished your conference. I know you've had plenty of opportunities to pontificate, so we're going to ask you to do a little bit more here. Our subject today, of course, is identity and access management. Uh, Gartner says it pretty well, as a matter of fact. They say it's a discipline that enables the right person to access the right data at the right time for the right reasons. Pretty pithy. Says it all, I think. Governments at all levels, and the private sector too, as you know, have come a long way uh, in the whole idea of credentialing their employees and managing identity access. Let's tackle this, uh, this, this issue first from the internal perspective of your employees uh, in the state offices. I remember actually my first week in Massachusetts as CIO, and that would have been in 92-93. My security person, who didn't even have that in their title back then, as you probably could, uh, could imagine, they came in to me and told me we had a little incident with one of our programmers in the data center. They had been caught accessing the Department of Revenue tax returns because he wanted to look up, and he was looking up Larry Bird, the Celtic uh, forward and Hall of Famer, looking up Larry, Larry Bird's tax returns. So I was, prevent, I was right in the facing my first union grievance here and got through it. But things have really, really changed uh, in terms of sophistication and everything else since that time. So let's start first with you, Todd. Tell me a little bit about the, the problems you faced and when it comes to uh, uh, authenticating employees, what the state of Texas is doing next. I've read a lot of great things about the, you started with the DMV, I believe, but tell us a little more. Well, so we, we have a very, uh, very federated state. Every, uh, every agency is uh, autonomous, um, although I'm the state CIO. I'm responsible for policy and uh, education and uh, sort of visioning and leadership and technology direction. We set the strategic direction for the state. And uh, the state in total, including higher education, is about 355,000 employees. Um, one thing that's true in Texas, one size fits one. So from an identity access management perspective, each organization is actually left to their own devices in terms of how, what solutions, what technology they implement to, uh, to handle their uh, credentialing for, uh, for state employees. We do have a, a project underway right now. It's a top priority for us that, uh, that is uh, constructing and deploying a digital assistant. And uh, we envision that that digital assistant, which will uh, roll out the first release in September, so coming soon, that digital assistant will uh, provide citizens the ability to create their own account and, uh, and we will uh, credential them uh, with their own sort of Amazon-like experience. And we've, we, uh, we are going to take that capability and actually add a checkbox that says I'm a state uh, employee as well. So uh, we're going to leverage this new portal capability and digital assistant to not only address uh, citizen uh, identity management, but also employee identi identity management in the long run. Okay. You know, I, I maybe should have started with Doug, because Doug, I noticed that, uh, that the NASIO organization waded, waded pretty deep into this issue uh, about seven or eight years ago with that SICAM report you did. I'll leave it up to you to explain the acronym for us, but tell us about the experience NASA has had weighing in on this subject. Thanks, John. It was a, uh, it was an out, really an outgrowth of our work in enterprise architecture, recognizing that we had uh, recommended that states move uh, ICAM, identity, uh, credentialing and access management, into a domain in their architecture for the enterprise level. Uh, and we were following the federal ICAM work and recognized that we probably needed to put out at least some roadmap, and it wasn't obviously it was not highly prescriptive, but more of a, a roadmap for states uh, to in, embark upon a group of, of kind of SICAM work. We had input from a number of states at a working group, and so for a year we worked on putting that together. It, it's clearly aged, and we need to update. We've been having those conversations, and even most recently with our folks at GSA, but that at least provided some framework. 
we were promoting uh, really, uh, you know, a federated model within the states, but with common common standards and common attributes. Uh, perhaps recognizing, as Todd said, I Todd's frame is one state, mine is. Have uh, you seen one state? You've seen one state. And so we have to recognize that they're all in different government models. Some are going to go for a highly centralized and enterprise identity and access management solution. Others are going to end up with agency by agency. But ultimately, I think we need to look towards a federated architecture for interoperability. So that was kind of our thrust was, was that. Uh, we did that, although identity and access management was not at that point and hasn't been until 2019 on the state CEO top 10 list. Yeah, I so, wanted to bring that up because yeah. that's very interesting. I'd like to little, hear a little more about what's behind that. Yeah. But first, let me get uh, Ranjeev involved in here from New York State. What's been your experience? I know that you mentioned there were several uh, initiatives you had underway and several on the drawing board. Yes. Uh, thank you, John. So um, the governor's vision was for uh, IT to be consolidated. It was transformational, horizontal, and uh, it was, was needed need to be made secure. So we started this process of consolidating core services, and uh, we brought all of our agencies, about 46 of them, into a single data center and started to identify core services that would be standardized on, one of them being identity. Uh, so we have about 160,000 state employees in 63 disparate eight active directory forests. We have now finished consolidating all of that into a single identity store with a single policy that's governed from the top down. So we're, we're getting to a point where uh, we apply standards and policies across the workforce from a single place. We manage that service in terms of password subservice, uh, policies around the, uh, the regs uh, that we have to apply for compliance, all from a single place. So it's been, it's been quite a journey, but we're there now, and it's uh, certainly uh, starting to uh, provide an ROI that we were, uh, we were looking for. You know, it's interesting what you said, and uh, comparing it a bit to Todd's answer, it seems to me, and I'm putting on my CIO control hat here, but when you said you wanted all in individual departments to do their own thing, kind of that, is that in, in, uh, in, in a contradiction to what Rajiv is doing in terms of an enterprise approach? Uh, it absolutely is. Uh, it, it is about the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, but again, I'll go back to the, to the federated nature of, uh, of uh, state government in Texas. Okay. Uh, the one, Republic, one, the Republic of Texas, Texas and that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, and uh, it, it, two things are true in Texas: one, uh, state workers uh, hate what they're doing, and two, and they want to change it. And then two is they're very, very adverse to change. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a conundrum mm -hmm. how to get uh, how to get a, a centralized approach like rajiv is, has done in new york is uh, one that we just do not think we would actually be successful with in texas well i think it was upton sinclair that once said that uh, uh it's very difficult to get someone to change the way they do things when they're paid not to change <laughs> that is correct that is absolutely correct i live with that every day <laughs> I know. yeah and it's different different states different strokes uh jerry cox okay from an industry perspective, what's HID Global see as the industry trends in, term of, in terms of IAM? That's a pretty big question. Well, I saved it for so, you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if I talk too long, just tell me to be quiet. Don't worry. Um, yeah, so identity and access management, that's, that's been around forever. And I, I, you know, short story, I actually started a long time ago before the Internet where people were dialing into modems for a multi-user computer, and, that, and, and I was selling stuff where that modem dialed them back at a predetermined phone number. So the whole idea was to make sure that the person that was accessing that computer really was who they say they were. And that was back in 1986. Mm. So, so things really haven't changed. Identity and access management, it's still about making sure that you know who the people are that are coming in, they have access to the right things, they're authorized to access only those things. Um, and, and what's really changed is the platform. Right, so ideas haven't changed, but the platform has changed. Now we have mobile phones. Um, we have people wearing devices that are smart. You know, maybe a wristwatch. Phones are, have more computing power than a computer did back in the 80s. <laughs> um, so what's changed a lot is the platform. Ideas haven't changed. Mm -hmm. so, so technology has moved along with that. Mm -hmm. And HID is very much a part of that. Todd, yes. Yeah, I would actually, I would like to add on to that. It really is not necessarily a technology discussion. It's really a policy discussion. Credentialing and identity access is, is all about the policy that 
supports a, a solid, you know, strategy and approach like New York has done. Absolutely, and, that, and it goes, and that's driven by business compliance requirements. Technically, right? I mean, the NIST standards that's driving an agency to do its business. For it to do its business, it needs to be in compliance, and for it to be in compliance, we need to put the policies in place to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. Consolidation just uh, enables that to go a little faster. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk about access and authentication, and we've been talking about your employees, um, is the interagency between employees of different departments, because obviously that was one of the big stumbling blocks for any kind of consolidation or coordination among agencies back in the day, uh, is that an issue now? Is it different than you do for your own department? Well, I can, I can tell you in Texas it is still continues to be an issue today. <laughs> <laughs> Again, going back to that autonomy, that yeah. sort of drives behavior. Um, it's still an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rajiv? Yeah, so for us it's going to be the next step because right now that we have the consolidation, we are now in the process of identifying roles that are, that are, that are required and then granting access to the roles. So allow the agency to dictate who gets put in that role to have access. So it's a, it becomes a simple decentralization of that access control management, allow the business to own, have ownership of the data and to, to work with uh, granting access rather than you know, coming to a central office and somebody going through a workflow. We make it really quick and easy for the agency to be delegated that control. It's their data, it's their controls, it's their audit trail, and it's their answers to the audits, auditors. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. a lot simpler when you, when you give that control back to them. Yeah. And that's common down across the states is that level of internal tension between the agency customers and, and central IT in the CIO office and I think seeing and then again access management in the top 10 list uh, gratifying to me because it's I think it's now been recognized as one of those cross-cutting issues but the reality is that I call it you know for the, for the years we've talked about it as Jerry said we've talked about this for many many years but we've kind of had this knowing doing gap right you knew aspirationally the state CIOs knew that they needed to have enterprise identity and access management for a range of applications, single sign, and they were looking particularly from a secure standpoint. But actually executing on that is extremely problematic. You have to have the policy framework, you have to have the, the governance, you have to have the juice behind being able to do that. And if, you're, if you can't move in that direction, ideally you want to move to a federated interoperable model where you say at least you have to comply with a foundational set of standards that you can pass these credentials across. But you know, certainly every state has addressed these um, mm -hmm. from within internally with their employees and contractors, and you know, certainly had to look at the next phase of that, which mm -hmm. is even uh, more of an opportunity, but a, you know, but a challenge to extend it. And Jerry, I guess the whole issue of uh, this sounds pretty complicated stuff, but the whole issue now mobility adds one extra layer of uh, com complexity to it. How's that being addressed now by the industry? So there, there is software that allows mobile devices to be used as authenticators. Right, so as a thing that can prove that somebody is who they say they are, right? Something you have to have, something you have to know typically is multi-factor authentication. And a phone is something certainly everybody carries. So that works quite well for citizens for multi-factor. Um, there's also authentication to phones. So you want to make sure that people, if they have data, you know, if especially you know, state, healthcare, whatever right. type of data, if it's protected data on their phones or have access to it from their phones that authentication to those phones is highly secure. Mm -hmm. So there's two different aspects. Phone is authenticator and then authenticating to the phone. Okay. Rajiv? So the challenge we face, I mean, we agree, technology is there and phones are there, but the citizen, the use cases, where especially in the health side, the citizens that are using those services not necessarily understand smartphones, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily own a smartphone. Right, and then it becomes a challenge when that becomes all or nothing. Where you're saying that's the only way to get into that system, uh, it becomes difficult to implement that. There's going to be massive pushback from agencies when you when you make it as rigid. I mean, I'm all for it, but then there's a practical aspect of it where mm -hmm. if your uh, user base is going to be majority, uh, you know, uh, in the generation where they don't really are going to go in that, down the path of owning a smartphone, then those services have you have to be able to have a broader policy to allow other channels of, of uh, authentication. I'm not saying no MFA. I'm saying you have to have additional options for MFA. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's a work in progress for us. Mm -hmm. Jerry? Yeah, so, so what Rajiv is saying is spot on. Um, you've got to be really careful you don't paint yourself into a corner. So whether it's a state agency or a federal agency or, or whoever, 
you've got some subpopulation of users that can't use some one or another authentication factors like a phone. So you know whatever it is you're using to handle that authentication needs to be flexible enough to support a whole plethora of different authentication factors. So that's a key. You want that flexibility. Um, you want to be able to present different populations of users, different things, depending on what it is that user might be able to use, right? So whether it be a finger or a facial recognition or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, switching a little bit now, let's talk about the compliance issues. I know it's always an interesting story, particularly Doug and I have had over the years about the, let's say, the relationship between the feds and the states in terms of compliance issues. Uh, with this, there are a number of federal requirements, and does, do states have the same level of uh, maturity? Are they following the federal government in terms of compliance rules and regulations for IAM? I can yeah. say that uh, from a Texas perspective, we do uh, adhere to NIST, um, National Institute of uh, Standards and Technology, um, which largely the federal government follows as well. Um, so in that sense, we're aligned, um, but, uh, but we don't have any specific, uh, you know, capabilities that, that would uh, more formally tie us to anything at the federal government. Um, it, uh, it's, it's interesting to me that uh, we go back, I said before, about the federal funding of state IT projects, and this is another area. I know the former president of NASIO, Bo Reese, testified last year, I guess it was, uh, uh, Doug, about the issue of security compliance and how multiple federal agencies' requirements were making states stumble over the things. That's a big issue, isn't it? It is a continuation, John. We uh, met today during our fly-in for the third consecutive year uh, with our friends at uh, IRS and FBI sieges. So those are the two uh, most, uh, you know, look at the terms of compliance, most stringent in terms of security controls and a range of controls across uh, federal tax information, therefore IRS 1075, and then FBI sieges, uh, obviously history uh, records for uh, criminal history records, uh, FBI data, and again, all the criminal data that states hold in trust. And so those are two areas that are really problematic. Let me just stop you there, because that's a great, great point, and we'll follow up with that in just a minute. My guests today are Todd Kimbrell, Deputy Executive Director, Department of Information Resources and Chief Information Officer for the state of Texas. Rajid Rao, Chief Technology Officer, Office of Information Technology Services for the State of New York. Doug Robinson, Executive Director, National Association of State Chief Information Officers. And Jerry Cox, Director of Business Development at HID Global. I'm your moderator, John Thomas Flynn, on the panel discussion, Identity and Access Management, a Top Priority for States in 2019. Sponsored by HID Global on the Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. HID Global provides trusted identity authentication and lifecycle management for people, places, and things. Solutions meet NIST 863.3's latest levels of assurance, FIPS 201 and FIDO compliance, and also provides cybersecurity for PIV compliance and e-authentication, ensuring that both federal and state and local governments have the broadest choice of authentication factors. Find out more at hidglobal.com IAM. Welcome back to the panel discussion, Identity and Access Management, a top priority for states in 2019, sponsored by HID Global on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guests today are Todd Kimbrell, Deputy Executive Director, Department of Information Resources and Chief Information Officer for the State of Texas, Rajid Rao, Chief Technology Officer, Office of Information Technology Services for the State of New York, and Doug Robinson, Executive Director, NASIO, National Association of State Chief Information Officers. And lastly, Jerry Cox, Director of Business Development at HID Global. I'm your moderator, John Thomas Flynn. Uh, when we left just a minute ago, we were talking about the federal compliance rules and regulations. And Doug, you were mentioning a little bit about how uh, the interpretation is, is, is more different a little bit than, than may have, I may have explained it earlier. Would you clarify that? It's, it's, it's different in terms of the interpretation. We started discussing about NIST 853 uh, the, in terms of the federal cybersecurity uh, guidance from NIST, and the federal agencies get to interpret that differently in terms of their build-out of uh, security for those systems. The states partner with the federal government. They're the agents uh, for uh, change in terms of federal programs, and obviously there's an impact on that. So they must comply, and the two most visible ones really are 
uh, around uh, S IRS 1075, which is Federal Tax Information IRS, and then uh, CGIS, which is uh, the FBI CGIS, which is again around criminal history records and mm -hmm. law enforcement records. Uh, they have uh, uh, different interpretations of the same set of outcomes, and their controls are different in terms of the compliance. So that's what causes challenge. So our advocacy ask, so to speak, our advocacy agenda for the last three years from NASIO, our primary one from the federal government is, uh, can you sit down and can we work on harmonizing those? We've mapped to 200 separate controls to show where there are essentially commonalities, but most importantly, there are differences among mm -hmm. those. Uh, generally, there's 85% agreement, but they're interpreted differently uh, by the, each federal agency, and therefore the audit findings are different. A quick example for things like everybody's familiar with lockout on in invalid passport attempts. Well, so IRS, their lockout policy is three. After three lockouts, after three invalid attempts at your password, you're locked out for 15 minutes. FBI CGIS is five. So after five unsuccessful attempts, you're locked out. They're the same outcome is preventing unauthorized access to systems. Why can't we simply do that because, again, that results in audit findings and adverse audit findings on the federal side. So there's a, a significant associated cost, both in personnel, time, most importantly in audits. And so the states, a, a small state may spend a thousand hours dealing with audits from 15 different agencies, all for the same set of security controls. So that's what we've asked for. We met with Suzette Kett uh, from uh, federal CIO and OMB uh, this morning. We also met with both representatives from IRS safeguards and from FBI CGIS on a roundtable discussion for an hour and a half to, again, continue the discussions about how can we advance this harmonization effort and get the federal agencies to sit down. Uh, we hope that will be prompted by this GAO report that is now being wrapped up, and there'll be a set of GAO findings that will essentially uh, recommend that the federal agencies get together and try to reduce the points of pain mm -hmm. for their state partners. Rajiv, I was going to say, I know there's an, an, an interesting topic, crucial topic, that is the opioid crisis. Um, Governor Cuomo was out in front of that issue in, in many respects. And I know that uh, you, the New, York, New York has done some, done some work on that, about the whole issue of authenticating prescriptions. I think all the states have to have it done by 2020. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too uh, certain that we have made that much progress where we can really start talking or make an announcement about it. But uh, the foundation is there now where we can start to launch these programs and, and get that mandate uh, mm -hmm. covered. So it's, it's work in progress. We're not fully there yet. Um, identity, um, we have a mature identity system, but uh, as time goes by, compliance requirements keep growing, and uh, those changes, adding those changes becomes an expensive proposition, and it takes time. Mm -hmm. Because not only do you have to put those in place, you then have to validate that all the legacy systems that are, uh, that are using identity as a service continue to work, because otherwise it's just a, a complete stop and halt to business, which is detrimental to what we're trying to accomplish, mm -hmm. which is provide redundancy and robust services. Jerry, did you want to mention something about CGIS? So, yeah, so a couple of interesting things. So Doug was talking about controls and trying to get those harmonized because we've got different requirements from different agencies. Um, in terms of identity, uh, whether it be for CGIS or for EPCS, electronically prescribing controlled drugs, um, there are also different requirements, and it actually compounds it, right? So, so for EPCS, um, there's a requirement coming as part of the Cures Act where every state must prescribe electronically if they want to be reimbursed by CMS. Um, so the requirement there is that the people be identity-proof to a certain level in accordance with NIST standards. They have to have multi-factor authentication um, at a certain level in accordance with NIST standards. For CGIS, there is also a multi-factor authentication rule where if, a, if an officer has a laptop in a car, not in a secured area, there's multi-factor authentication required there. The requirements are different, right? From FBI, Center of Justice Information Systems, to the DEA's requirements for EPCS. So it's not just controls, it's identity, multi-factor authentication, it, it compounds. Mm -hmm. So we touch on a lot of that stuff um, in, in the company that I work for. So we're quite familiar with the problems. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm literally working with police departments every single day on those kinds of problems, um, as well as with HR and EMR vendors to help solve that problem for EPCS. So 
You know, this may sound counterintuitive, but do states ever put compliance uh, rules and regulations in force against the federal government for anything? You've stumped the panel. I guess I have. <laughs> I would think I would think you'd have to you've have some uh, databases that are well. I'll give you an example. How about elections databases? You know, the federal government tried to get access to federal databases, which they probably could have done themselves. But remember, they that Pence Commission asked for uh, uh, elected uh, databases of voters, and they were denied it. I guess it come right out of it. Mm-hmm. You learn. See, that's why you come to a panel like this. You that's learn right. something. So that's, that's just me right. getting all this information. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's a funding. It's like we hand you the bag of money, but underneath we have the pulling the strings. So, uh, I mean, states the states recognize that, and um, I think we just have to. We need to flip the script a little bit about, uh, you know, more collaboration around um, some of these opportunities because uh, what we have found sort of in the last 15 years, as Nancy has been advocating for the states, is the uh, glacial movement of the policy framework. Uh, around financial accounting, cost allocation models, the, the audit process is that the states are moving and have been moving quickly towards a more consolidated, unified, uh, they're rationalizing their applications, they're moving into, uh, and certainly our, our, our two state representatives can talk about that, that movement, uh, that has to be recognized by the federal policy folks and that we have to have flexibility move to cloud services, uh, move to virtualization, move to consolidated data centers. So they're used to dealing with the individual programs and they're all coalescing and they're being operated by the state CI organization in many cases and that causes challenges to kind of rationalize the, the compliance issue of the federal government against that and effectively manage the cost allocation. As you know, the CIOs uh, predominantly operate in a 100% chargeback model and so mm-hmm. they're using those federal funds, right. but uh, right. the, the, the haven't, haven't modernized the recognition of that yet. Yeah, a longstanding problem. Yeah. Todd? Yeah, so I, I'll go back to that uh, harmonization issue, and, and I think Doug just touched on a point that's really important. Harmonization is the first part. Getting, getting all of the various standards and audit requirements com, com, consolidated so that we have sort of a single framework, the lowest com, common denominator, if you will, that everybody follows. But then beyond that, it's getting recognition of the fact that we do have these programs that are centralized. And if I've got 100 agencies that are going through a a common shared program, um, it would be great if the federal government would audit the program once instead of auditing 50 agencies that operate in the same program and it's the same audit over and over and over again, Mm. rather than just, you know, auditing the program one time and going, all of these agencies in this program have now complied with 70% 70% of the audit requirements. Now they can go individually and just do 30% on the individual agencies. But that, that's a place that really would be very beneficial for the states. You know, it's funny you say that. It reminds me of back when I used to work for the Pentagon about that single audit. Remember that, Remember that, Doug? There was a single audit that kind of was supposed to do what you talked about so doing, but it was too good an idea, on. and there is, yeah, there it is went there. away, you know? There is, there is yeah. the states, a statewide single audit exists today, but it's financial. It just doesn't yeah. deal with the... Yeah, it's financial audit. Yeah. Right? Uh, well, anyway, uh, let's switch over now to uh, citizen access, which I think sometimes is a little more interesting for the folks at home, but also because it has so many different ramifications. Now, I remember in '93 in Massachusetts, uh, Dave Lewis, our friend Dave Lewis, was the CIO for uh, DMV. Later, became state CIO, I believe. Anyway, we started the first internet access, signed a contract, and he wanted to allow people to. Uh, register their cars over the internet back in early 90s and uh, then it went the, and it was a very well-intentioned effort and it went well and of course other agencies not only in Massachusetts but around the around the country copied it now that's all well and good but all of a sudden when you had to have a different login password for every one of these different agencies it became very clear that it was uh, it, it called for that enterprise approach we talked about and I think you were saying Rajiv that uh, that's one of the things that New York's is, is trying to do. Yeah, we're focused on that right now. We're kind of investing heavily in identity, uh, not only for uh, single sign-on or better user experience, but also to enhance the, uh, the protocols that we support in, in, in uh, authentication. As the industry moves forward, uh, our identity store needs to keep up and provide those elevated uh, levels of uh, you know, multi-factor, like uh, uh, we were mentioning, and uh, all the other protocol channels for mobile access, and all of those things have to... 
uh, be account accounted for when you provide identity as a service because otherwise the applications will tend to be legacy monolithic, you know, traditional three-tier type of thing, which is not where the industry is going. Mm -hmm. In this day where people like to use their phones to do their business transactions mm -hmm. uh, and, and have this uh, idea that two clicks get them gets them anything, why does it take them 50 steps to get a renewal of an existing right. service from yeah. the state? It yeah. just kind of dissuades them as to you know, where we are with what we're providing them. Yeah. So Todd, back to your uh, letting the agencies do their own approach, are you still gonna have some kind of an enterprise identity login? Or are, they, are you gonna uh, get around we, that? Somehow? Actually, yeah, we are for citizens. So we, we've started this initiative about four years ago. We call it My Government, My Way. And the idea is philosophically, we want to shift the paradigm of how agencies deliver services to citizens in Texas. And today, every agency has that sort of blinders on of how they deliver services to their constituents. In reality, we wanna flip that 180 degrees and have everybody look at how does the citizen consume those services. And so we're building out a portal uh, we're going to leverage, we go through a third party, you know, identity proofing process, leveraging biometrics and facial recognition. Uh, and, and once we've created an account, uh, we're actually going to use a global unique ID, which is a, a large, you know, string that's unique to each citizen that opts in to create their account. Uh, and then we'll use that number to send it off to the individual agencies so that they can append that number into their core systems. So it minimizes the impact on agencies so they don't have to do a lot of work but it gives us the ability to sort of create a, a pseudo golden record of a citizen without really anybody owning that record. Now, and that number would not be visible to the citizen, so it's unlike a driver's license number or a vehicle renewal or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and we're very hopeful, anxious that this first release will be very well received. Okay. Jerry, what about the citizen access? What's the industry looking at and trending toward? The citizen access is really interesting. Um, it's got to be easy for citizens, right? So, so first of all, citizens need options, right? They don't want a state or a government forcing, you know, some authentication gizmo down their throat, throat you know, whether it be a, an electronic driver's license or a token or saying they have to authenticate by mobile. So, so key, I think, is allowing citizens to self-enroll, um, let them opt in, and give them choices, right? So, so some state agencies may accept... Um, maybe a password and a fingerprint. Others might accept password and uh, maybe they have a Bluetooth device on them. Maybe it's a watch, right, that just maintains a Bluetooth connection, but it shows that they are who they are and they have something, right? So easy two-factor authentication. So it, it depends a lot, I think, for citizens on what it is that they're accessing, right, the level of controls that are needed, and then also on what the citizens are willing to utilize. But that choice thing, I think, is very important. Mm -hmm. For citizens, so that yeah, Jerry, that's spot on. That's exactly yeah. right. Citizens expect a, uh, an experience uh, from their government that exceeds that that they realize today from the the retail world, the commercial world, and we've seen studies that clearly demonstrate that they expect that type of uh, performance from from their government. Well, I tried to Todd's uh, comment earlier. Um, our identity platform is now being pivoted to be citizen centric. What we're trying to do is build personas for citizens. So when we know that a citizen does business with the state, they do business with 15 or 16 agencies. Uh, there is no reason why we cannot correlate that information to provide them better experience or in just-in-time service while they're on there doing something. They could be prompted to do other things that are coming up due in short notice. That not only makes it efficient for them, it also makes it efficient for the uh, for the agencies as well, because now rather than having to send these notices and things like that, you're being more proactive yeah. in providing citizen services. Um, you're renewing your, your, your driver's license. Uh, maybe you had got a license for your boat last year. And it's a gentle prompt to say, hey, do you want to renew that as well for this season? Or are you getting a fishing or a hunting license? Maybe well, we can prompt you for that as well. It's all based on understanding the persona of the citizen and understanding the business they do with the state. And that all comes from being to able to have a single identity platform where you can start to build that. So to your point of the golden record, once you have that, you can start to attach all these business intelligences to it to then help be more proactive with your citizen services. Okay. We're going to have to take a little break right now. We'll come back to this. I know Doug wanted to weigh in. Uh, my guests today are Todd Kimbrell, Deputy Executive Director, Department of Information Resources and Chief Information Officer for the State of Texas, Rajiv Rao, Chief Technology Officer, Office of Information Technology Services in the state of New York, Doug Robinson, 
Executive Director, National Association of State Chief Information Officers, and Jerry Cox, Director of Business Development at HID Global. I'm your moderator, John Thomas Flynn, on the panel discussion, Identity and Access Management, a top priority for states in 2019. Sponsored by HID Global on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. HID Global provides trusted identity authentication and lifecycle management for people, places, and things. Solutions meet NIST 863-3's latest levels of assurance, FIPS 201 and FIDO compliance, and also provides cybersecurity for PIV compliance and e-authentication, ensuring that both federal and state and local governments have the broadest choice of authentication factors. Find out more at hidglobal.com slash IAM. Welcome back to the panel discussion, Identity and Access Management, a top priority for states in 2019. Sponsored by HID Global on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guests today are Todd Kimbrell, Deputy Executive Director, Department of Information Resources and CIO for the state of Texas. Rajiv Rao, Chief Technology Officer, Office of Information Technology Services, State of New York. Doug Robinson, Executive Director of NACIO, and Jerry Cox, Director of Business Development at HID Global. I'm your moderator, John Thomas Flynn. When we closed the last segment, we were talking about citizen access and IAM. And one of the things, Doug, you mentioned at the end of that last segment you wanted to weigh in on. I did, John. I wanted to make the, the connection uh, with the CIO priorities because I think there's uh, some alignment that we could talk about in terms of we're into the citizen access and really around digital government. But if you look at our 2019 CIO priorities, uh, number one, security and risk management. Number four, digital government. Number eight, data management. Number 10, identity and access management. You can connect the dots between you know, all of those, and I think that's certainly uh, what, the, what the state CIOs and what they're, they want to do in their organizations is they have aspirations to deliver those services to citizens. The challenge is that there's got to be, a, it's got to be accompanied by the recognition that we need some business process improvement and business rationalization behind the scenes. We've got legacy systems. So that's one of the challenges is the, the experience and the relationship with citizens in their states is pretty sporadic and, and, and really kind of transitional. It doesn't happen on a regular basis. It's not the same as their consumer. So it might be a year between those experiences and interactions and renewing their professional license, getting their fishing license, renewing their DMV, four years when they're doing their driver's license. So it becomes more of a, a user uh, experience that's, problematic in terms of help desk and support and you also have to be able to connect all those back-end systems and modernize those along the way while you're doing that so I just wanted to point that out that the technology is just one small component of being able to deliver these kind of seamless customer experiences to citizens uh, as states try to roll this out and Rajiv you were mentioning about the uh, the, the state and local the multi-government uh, issues that come up, that confront us with uh, identity management because Citizens don't just get their services from the state. Absolutely, uh, yes. So uh, the citizen is a citizen, regardless of whether, what service he's availing, whether it's from, from uh, state agencies or from local government. Uh, so uh, the, the question I keep bringing up and in, in, in internal conversations is around the identity. Why do we have to have X number of identity stores? And why does a citizen have to have accounts created in all of these identity stores and then have to remember those passwords if they're not the same in all these identity stores? And especially if he's going to be renewing or availing of a service once a year, his first action is going to be forgot password, and you're going to go reset that, right? That tends to be what happens, right? And that, mm -hmm. that not only is a bad or a poor experience for him, it also is an overhead to the IT folks that support that system because that costs money. Resetting a password is not a simple, you know, it does take compute and, and, and cycles to, to do that. Uh, so that's not efficient. If you have a single place where you consume identity from or you offer it as a service, then there's no reason why a, a, a local service or a local government or, or a municipality cannot consume identity as a service and then control the access to the application outside and decoupled from the identity service, which would just make it so much easier and much more secure because now you've reduced the, the footprint and the, the, the attack vectors are kind of minimized down to you know, a, a, mm -hmm. a, a much more robust uh, service. Are any of the states actually doing, I guess you'd call it a, uh, an intergovernmental approach like you're describing as any state actually working with local governments to have an, a statewide approach to this kind of thing? I've started the conversation and there seems to be some traction for, the, for those uh, entities that have, you know, are, are struggling with providing uh, support for those kind of services. 
they certainly are very interested in that shared service model where they could start to consume yeah. uh, services like identity and a few others that we kind of like backup as a service and things like that that they could probably uh, you know uh, avail off from yeah. the uh, well, consolidation that kind of cooperation wouldn't be totally unique because a number of you, the states, are out there providing data center services to, to states. In fact, uh, Los Angeles County, I think, just went to the state for a number of their data center uh, operations control. It's pretty interesting development. It could, I see the same thing happening. Jerry, have you seen anything like that? So I, I do see some interesting. Well, I see some interesting stuff going on. So there's there are some federal requirements that have come down lately that actually affect citizens. Uh, in terms of identity and, and credentialing. So the Cures Act um, requires that patients direct their own healthcare data. And if they want their healthcare record to be sent from one doctor to another doctor, that patient has to be identity proofed at identity assurance level two. They have to be authenticated at authentication assurance level two. Um, so it's the same kind of stuff that we have seen for EPCS, that we've seen for CGIS. Now, patients the population of the United States. So the, the timing is very good for states to take on that kind of a central role and take care of that citizen proofing, credentialing, um, you know, in, in a way that can be consumed by these different applications, these different needs. There, there's, there's, there's no reason that we should have three different hospitals providing three different identities, right? It's, it's crazy, right? And then all of the doctors already have to get credentialed. Um, it's yeah. and, and John, we're going to see this already with uh, FirstNet, the public safety broadband network. And so that's a nationwide, so that's another example of, again, a, a federal program, but it's really uh, governed by the states and used at the local level. So we've got right now uh, in the kind of first phase of deployment, close to 600,000 end users. Uh, they have a identity and a credentialing and access management, an ICAM framework uh, that is really more federated because it has to be federated. They're going to be able to have to use credentials that have already been issued and identity proofed and vetted among a whole host of first responders, firefighter, police, EMS. They have to be able to use these devices long term as we roll out the first net for, uh, for those users. And again, I, I think you're going to have a lot of collisions if you don't allow uh, those users be able to get on the network and, and be authorized, the access controller, as you've talked about. You want to make sure that that firefighter that has that device is a legitimate firefighter in some type of credential. makes it much more difficult. You know, how do you do that? Uh, and so that's, that's one thing they're addressing right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he doesn't have to go through a forgot password scenario when he's trying to get on FirstNet for an emergency service exactly. scenario, right? Exactly. So it all yeah. goes back to let's make it simple, let's make it consistent yeah. so they don't have to struggle with this. When it's not needed, right? That's not their priority, and no, if they're getting stuck on that, running into an hazmat incident, absolutely. though, and you're fully gowned up and gloved up, how do you have how to use biometrics? How do you use yeah. a retinal scan when you've got a full mass shield yeah, on absolutely. oxygen? So it's a totally different environment of how they're going to use these secure devices to be able to have interoperable communications in the amount of an emergency. So these are these are realistic. Uh, these are these are not in the abstract. They're happening today. They've got to got to address that. So mm -hmm. it's a whole new area of yeah. identity. Excuse me. Interesting problem. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. I was going to ask this question, but I think uh, you folks have already answered it. I was wondering why the whole concept of identity access management had jumped into the top 10 like it did. Uh, it, it, obviously, it's a huge problem, and, and the more we talk about it, the more complex and complicated it really gets, particularly when we go into these multi-layers of government trying to work together to make it easier for the citizens to do their business. What's the, we talked about mobility with the government workforce. Again, I mentioned mobility brings an extra layer of complexity to uh, uh, identity access for citizens, correct? It does, it does. Um, certainly we're, we're seeing those challenges, uh, trying, to, trying to satisfy the, the needs and requirements of every individual unique citizen is a, is a daunting task at times. Um, and I, I think the movement, you know, why, why is it a, a, an issue now? Why is it a top priority now instead of, you know, 10 years ago? And if you look back at how government has delivered services, we were uh, like the e-commerce uh, phase that people saw uh, in the commercial markets. Government had been in this e-government process wherein we were taking transactions and moving them online. And I think everybody pretty much across the, the country has now checked that box. We now have services available online, we're taking online payments, the risk associated with that is gone, and we're shifting into this world of digital government. 
And, and in order to really effectively move into digital government where we're automating everything and being able to take advantage of data and single data stores instead of multiple data stores uh, and to deliver services to the citizen, we have to be able to leverage that data. We have to be able to get uh, more automated in areas that, that we couldn't before. And a key part of that is going to be the citizen identity. We mm -hmm. have to have that in order to be able to tie the underlying data together to deliver services in a digital government environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have another question uh, that I think is always of interest, and it certainly is of interest to, uh, to you folks and your colleagues uh, in government, and that is, how do you pay for it? Is this one of those things that you can go before the Finance Committee or the legislature? Do you put a security spin on it? Do you put a breach spin on it? How do you get money for this kind of thing? So we always know that's the mother's milk of any kind of technology project. It is a security thing. No, regardless, identity is your key to the kingdom. I mean, if you, if I have your identity, I have everything I need to be able to access your data, especially with the way we implement access controls. So it is definitely a security play. I mean, that's not. There's no question about that. So we just made a significant investment on the security side of identity to to improve the security posture of our identity services, uh, provide additional assurance level uh, functionality that we did not have at at, at some time. Uh, we're going to have that uh, operational shortly. Uh, so as the industry is maturing and you're probably starting to bring in additional platforms that are going to be leveraging services from the state, you need to provide these services. And, yeah, so it's, it's almost always a security play before it's anything else. Okay. I'd like to go around the table here to talk a little bit about implementation, what you've been doing in your state and also what you see in the industry and around the country. And that is, okay, you do the project, what are some of the lessons learned? What's some of the advice you would give to your colleagues at NASIO or at local government levels or at the federal government level, for that matter, in rolling these out? What did you learn from the, the, the whole thing? Well, I'll say for Texas, we are moving forward with this initiative to create this digital assistant wherein you know, we are now going to start capturing the citizen identities. For us, we haven't gone far enough down that path to really have a, a full suite of lessons learned. But one thing that has become obvious, because we're taking an opt-in approach, not only for the citizens, but also for our partner agencies and the services that they deliver online, uh, we are seeking voluntary participation in deploying these services digitally, even though they're already on Texas.gov today. Uh, but nonetheless, the agencies have to agree to uh, participate in this new uh, strategy and vision. Uh, and we're seeing that there's some reluctance on some part, you know, some of the agencies uh, yeah, may yeah. be a little bit reluctant to try something new. And I, I think, you know, what's true in Texas, at least as I've seen since I've been there, is Nobody likes to be first, nobody likes to be last. So we work really hard to try and identify who that lead steer is and get that one steer moving in the right direction and then the herd follows. Anything you do differently? No, I think, uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think, uh, I think largely we put together a very good uh, uh, technology stack. We have a great partner we're working with. Um, I think we're gonna hit our target of, of this fall with the first release and uh, I think it's all coming together very nicely for us. Rajiv, what's your experience in New York? We quickly realized we needed to go to a hybrid model for those SaaS services so we're not dependent on the data center or a single point of failure, uh, which would basically take all those services offline. So um, what we're working on really diligently right now is to securely extend this service out into a, a, a cloud space as well. So those SaaS services are consuming it from there, from a, from a cloud space first before they come down to a, a secondary data center, like a, you know, on-prem for us. So those are the architectural changes we are starting to incorporate in that refresh cycle right now. Uh, just to mitigate one risk that we see today is we have uh, two data centers that run this service, but we have external services that are coming all the way back into our data center to consume that, and it kind of defeats the purpose of having a SaaS service to a degree. We want to change that dynamic a little bit. Okay. You make that Doug, sound so simple. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, you got 30 seconds. What, is the, what are the lessons learned out there in the, the hemisphere? Uh, you've got to address your legacy environment, and by that I mean not only the systems, but you may have uh, a legacy of disparate identity and access management pieces out there. So you've got to figure out how you're going to address that. Is it interoperability at a standards level, or are you going to kind of rip and replace and say we're going to have an enterprise solution across all the agencies, uh, kind of what you know, New York is looking at and what they're deploying, which is you know, 160,000 employees all are on the same identity as a service. I think aspirationally, the state CEOs would love to say, I deliver identity as a service as I deliver X as a service. So it becomes the X as a service component. The challenge with that, that is, uh, number one, data quality. If you look at these data stores and look at the identity 
of the data, data they have about citizens or about employees, you know, across the board, it's not consistent. You'll line up five citizens, you're going to get four common, and then you're going to get one address difference. And so I think that's a big problem for them is the complexity of their current environment. Jerry Cox, bring us home. What's the industry looking at in terms of uh, rolling out these systems and the best practices and lessons learned? So, you got one minute. So a couple of key things. Um, really two different ends of the spectrum. For citizens, um, for officers, um, things have to be frictionless and they have to work every time, right? You can't have an officer attempting to log in and put their fingerprint on a device and it's right, it's not working and the guy in front of you that's you pulled over, he's getting out of the car with a gun, that's not gonna work, right? It's gotta be quick, it's gotta be frictionless, it has to work every time. Yeah. Same thing with doctors with EPCS. If they can't control, if they can't prescribe controlled drugs, um, and they're in a pain practice, that's a problem, especially if they're in the state of New York where it's mandated by law that they have to do it that way. This stuff has to work. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, SICAM, which is where we started, you know, to, to come, kind of come full circle, um, that was a decade ago, right? It needs to be refreshed. It was ahead of its time, but it does give you the interoperability that's needed between states for things like first responders, mm. right? So that... SciCam stuff that was based on FICAM, that's still applicable. Mm. Not going to work for citizens, but for first responders, absolutely. Yeah, and Doug mentioned they're taking a look at that, so that's something we can talk about next time. With that, we'll have to close. I'd like to thank our guest today, Todd Kimbrell, Deputy Executive Director, Department of Information Resources and CIO for the state of Texas, Rajiv Rao, Chief Technology Officer, Office of Information Technology Services, State of New York, Doug Robinson, Executive Director of NASIO, and Jerry Cox, Director of Business Development at HID Global. I'm your moderator, John Thomas Flynn, and you're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search for HID Global. Thank you for listening to the panel discussion, Identity and Access Management, a top priority for states in 2019, sponsored by HID Global on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.